Hello, and welcome to this episode of Spheres of Influence. Spheres of Influence is a podcast where we look at those important spheres in our lives, religion, politics, and culture. I am Dennis Sanders, and I'm your host. Today is another interview, um, and we were going to be talking a little bit about the future of the GOP, and a lot of ink has been spilled and a lot of voices have probably been talked dry about this topic. Where is the GOP headed? What can it be saved? What's going to happen to never Trumpers with, um, in, the, in the movement? And there are lots of different theories. Some believe that it is a fool's errand to consider uh, trying to change the party. Others feel that maybe it's time to start a third party. And still others think that maybe it's just time for us to all become Democrats. Within all of this discussion of the future, of course, we have the party, which is moving very much towards, farther and farther towards supporting and seeing that their only basis for existing is their support of uh, former President Trump. So, what is the future of the GOP? For that, I had a discussion with Reed Howard. I've known Reed off and on through uh, various uh, anti-Trump, never-Trump groups, such as uh, Principles First. He has been very active. He was uh, one of the people behind uh, Republicans for Biden. Uh, he is um, just actually just graduated um, with an M, uh, Master's of Divinity from Candler uh, uh, Seminary in Atlanta. And he is also probably one of the youngest signers of A Call for American Renewal. That is a document uh, that was released this past week of 150 leaders uh, uh, GOP leaders, some representing various um, uh, political administrations, some were former um, congressmen, uh, con uh, representatives, others were former um, governor or, or working at the state level, and those that are involved in organizations such as uh, Reed Howard. And so what we did today is kind of um, talk about the call um, call for American Renewal. Um, where is this group headed? Um, it is a group that is more of a movement, um, and that's partially because there are some that are very thinking that maybe it's time to create a third party. There are those that think that it's time for to be a faction within the GOP. And so we discussed that. What is the best route? Um, what is the future of this group? And we will also talk about um, the GOP's turn to authoritarianism as it becomes seeming becomes less enamored with accepting uh, the outcomes of um, democracy and how that and how evangelicals in America and especially white evangelicals in America were influenced and were were 
persuaded to support someone who in many ways was against their values. Just a reminder before we go into the, uh, this topic, if you are interested, um, please consider uh, leaving a review or rating. Um, do that on whatever um, platform you're on. Uh, those letting us know how we've done helps to improve this podcast. And it also helps for people to find the podcast. If you uh, support a podcast that's a little bit off of not what you are expecting, it's a little bit different, uh, please consider rating, giving us a, a, a good rating. So with that, let us continue with the interview uh, with Reed Howard. Okay, and welcome to Spheres of Influence. This is the podcast that deals with those three important spheres in our lives, religion, politics, and culture. Today, um, after a few more episodes of commentary, just for me, you get to hear another voice. Um, and I have on hand today, um, Reed Howard, and we've kind of known each other through various um, never Trump, anti-Trump circles. Um, and today we'll kind of be focusing a little bit on uh, the campaign for American renewal. And that is the most recent um, gathering of, I would say Trump critical Republicans. Uh, at least the, this current price, about 150 signers came out with a manifesto last week. And this is kind of the beginning of a movement is kind of the best way to describe it. And we will also be talking about what has been going on and what has happened within the GOP that has made it um, kind of move towards this kind of an authoritarian turn. So before we kind of get into the, uh, the question and answer, um, Reed, would you be willing to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, Dennis, thank you so much for having me on. It's really a pleasure to, to talk with you. And I know we, we got to know each other um, through Principles First, which is a good grassroots organization dedicated to these founding principles of our country. And we want to renew them for the 21st century and expand them that have, because so many have been under threat these last four years. And then the Convention on Founding Principles, which had a lot of the same goals. And I'm just, I'm really thrilled to be talking with a fellow minister today. So, you know, I've always seen my vocation as expanding greater justice. And mm -hmm. at one point in my life, I thought that that was only going to be through politics and public service and working for campaigns and advancing policies that would create impact at scale through public policy. And then I found a call to ministry and decided to go to seminary and to also focus not just on the systemic level for justice, but how I can be a part of the work of justice for my neighbor and for the individual. And that my faith has always sustained that interest in public service and just giving back to others. And so, 
So I just recently graduated with my Master's of Divinity from Candler School of Theology at Emory University. And Congratulations. Thank you so much. And I feel really blessed to have found a role after seminary where I get to both focus on the politics and public service aspect, but also do ministry. Okay. Well, one of the reasons we have you on here is that you were one of the signers of the Call to American Renewal. Um, and I believe one of the youngest. And one of the questions that we kind of wanted to start off with is, what is the campaign for American Renewal? I think one of the people have been talking about that early on there was a talk about, do we start a third party? Is it going to be a faction within the GOP? And it sounds like they decided to split the difference. Um, mm. How would you describe it? You know, I would describe this group as a bunch of um, uh, people who are unsatisfied with the status quo of the Republican Party and don't want to just wait around for things to get better. They want to take action. Mm -hmm. And so it's a group of former members of Congress, former cabinet members, former Republican Party officials, including past chairman of the Republican National uh, committee and and then some grassroots leaders who have said this is a list of what we believe in as conservatives as people that are center right that we think the Republican Party needs to adopt moving forward and if they're not willing to do that then we're going to find a new way and so a call for American renewal it's not a new party mm-hmm. it's a movement that can either, work to transform the GOP or to start something new if those efforts for reform don't yield any results. And I have my own particular preference for where this movement will head, which I'm sure we'll get into later. So um, how did you get involved with becoming one of the signers? Yeah. So Evan McMullen has been one of the leaders to kind of spearhead this effort. And he asked me to be a signer as somebody who is a young person. I border on the millennial Gen Z line um, to to represent the younger generation. Um, But also just because we've done a lot of work to rally grassroots people. So my friend, Emily Matthews, and I started this grassroots network of Republicans who are willing to stand up and support Joe Biden. And we launched this at a time before the Lincoln Project or Republican Voters Against Trump had really burst onto the national scene. And so we said, we're really not big political figures. We don't have a platform, but let's just see how we can connect people and use our collective voices to speak out for change. And Mm -hmm. I think that journey is what started me to become a part of the group that crafted a call for American renewal. We met uh, several months ago, all the founding signatories, and we had a day's long worth of discussions. And we broke into subgroups and committees to talk about things like what would it require to support a slate of candidates in congressional and local elections? Or how can we coalition build with these groups in the party um, that have been run out by Donald Trump? There are all these groups, we came together, we voted on whether or not we wanted to start a new party or form a faction within the existing Republican party. And the results that 
of that meeting is what you saw with the call for American renewal. And where do you kind of see this going in the next few months? Obviously, we're heading more closer into um, closer and closer to the midterms in 2022. Um, will this movement be putting up candidates um, to running congressional races um, next year? Or are they kind of more focused on 2024? I, you're, you'll see people run for office in 2022. So okay. they're gonna run for Congress. Some are gonna run for governor of their states. There's gonna be people in down ballot races as well. And we're really excited to champion them. Michael Wood, who ran for Congress in Texas's sixth congressional district, was not a part of this effort um, in any formal way, but we really saw him as an early test case. And he didn't do well uh, in a in a real in a crowded jungle primary. Um, he garnered about three percent of the vote, and that was. Um, a sign that we really needed to organize, come out and coalesce in a formal way. It's why you saw us launch and we're gonna be able to have some financial resources to support these candidates. And I'm looking forward to that. And Dennis, just so you know, kind of my timeline, I see the 2022 midterm elections as a really crucial uh, test case for the big fight, which is the 2024 presidential primary within the GOP. I think if the Republicans nominate someone who is a hardcore Trumper, who buy, buys into the big lie, then the party will be irredeemable, in my opinion, after that. If the party is willing to go a different route, someone who wasn't as invested in the big lie, someone who's willing to approach moderates and suburban women and is doesn't use language that's demonizing of immigrants and black people in this country like we saw Donald Trump use that type of language then I think the party has a chance for hope I I don't imagine 20 the 2024 primaries are going to be the perfect candidate but I think we can get a sense of whether or not healing is possible and, you know, there are going to be some people that will say that it's already too late for the GOP. How do you, well, I guess basically, how do you respond to those people? And what chance do you have of making inroads in the party when it seems, at least appears to be so thoroughly Trumpified? So what we saw throughout the last four years was a crisis of courage within the Republican Party. Elected officials did not stand up to Donald Trump. They didn't organize against Donald Trump. Liz Cheney was something different. January 6th was a change. And although she lost her leadership position and things don't look good right now, I do think that that made a difference with Republican voters in the middle of the country who are saying these people have crossed a line in the sand. And whether or not there's going to be efficacy behind us standing up to say we have to change, I think it's really important that we stand up and make this fight. The center right has always throughout history been a really important bulwark against authoritarianism. The a strong faction 
among the center-right of conservative parties, whether we're talking countries like Germany or France or England, the United Kingdom, uh, the center-right is able to put a check on the most inhospitable and illiberal tendencies of far-right movements. And so we need that in America as well because we're starting to see some really dangerous things out of our Republican politicians. For example, Donald Trump called the Secretary of State of Georgia and at Raffensperger and asked him to find additional votes. And the only reason that our country didn't slide into a constitutional crisis is because the Secretary of State said, no, I'm not going to do that. But he's being primaried right now by somebody who likely would overthrow the election. And so we haven't even begun to see these constitutional crises that are really a threat to the country. And that's why this call for American renewal is so important. We need sane and rational leaders within the party who haven't given up the fight. And we might be at the losing side right now, but I think that courage is contagious and I'm willing to fight that fight. I encourage everybody that's listening even if your politics don't align with the right side of the political spectrum, we need your support to organize a healthy center-right faction to push back against the crazies in our party. So, you know, I have hope for that reason. Martin Luther King talks about, we need a dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. And that's what I found in the people that have signed this document. And that's what we need for our country right now. So what do you think about those people who say, and you've heard it probably a lot, that, you know, why don't you just at least even have a temporary alliance with the Democrats? I mean, this seems like a, a no-win situation. I think that's fair criticism. That's why I voted for Joe Biden and encouraged all of my Republican friends and elected officials to do so as well. I was part of a a group called the Lincoln Project. I served on their Virginia Steering Committee. And the reason why I think they asked me is because I had worked in the Virginia Senate. And what I did is I had, I had a Rolodex of every Republican elected official in the Commonwealth. And I made a list of about 40 people who I thought would be willing to stand up and say, enough is enough. We're going to support Joe Biden for president. And I called all of them, relying on my personal connections and relationships with these elected officials. Now, nobody took me up on it, but I think what we need is this temporary alliance with the same Democrats. So I totally support that goal. You know, and I, I voted for uh, Democrats, for Congress, and for the Senate. And that's not because I agreed with their policies. I'm still a conservative, but I just believed it was essential we did not vote for somebody who would have enabled Donald Trump's worst impulses. And I did not trust the Republicans running in that race to stand up for, to stand up for the Constitution when Donald Trump asked them to bend. So I encourage that. Well, I think one of the other things that is, that I've always kind of seen as a concern is, um, over the years, I would say probably over the last 15 years or so, I've just always noticed that there were a number of people, whether it was a person or a group um, that came forward that in some ways were trying to 
move the party back maybe towards the center right. And, you know, they always had kind of a very good rollout. And then they kind of petered out. And I guess my question here is, how is this different? Um, what, how will it continue kind of in the long, for the long haul? Are you talking about the call for American renewal? Yes, yeah. What's happened is the establishment, the more moderate factions of the Republican Party have long had the historical advantage. So they've been in positions of power within the party and they've gotten one, complacent, and two, they realized that they needed to court voters on the extreme edges of the party. And therefore what they would do is hedge their language. And you saw someone like Mitt Romney who ran for office in 2012 um, for president get way more conservative in both the primary and the general election in order to keep these people in his coalition. He, he would never talk about the Medicare program that he rolled out in Massachusetts because it would have displeased too many Republicans, even though that, that policy would have helped him in a general. So we need moderates who are unapologetic and who are gonna run on a bold vision of compassion and inclusion and talk about the ways that our policies really can make a tangible impact in a bread and butter way. We haven't seen Republicans talk like that in a long time. And I think once Republicans keep losing, they're gonna, voters are gonna look around to say, well, who cannot just speak our language, but can actually carry their banner into elected office to make the change that's gonna have a real impact in people's lives. I, my wager is that they're going to over time turn to the more moderate voices. And we know that it's popular, Char Governor, Charlie Baker of Massachusetts is one of the most popular governors in America. Larry Hogan is as well. These are, they govern as centrists. The other thing is my generation, the, the young up and coming American voters, you know, they are more um, moderate on a lot of issues, including social issues. We've already seen tremendous change in the way that Republicans think about same sex marriage and uh, those pol the the kind of the realm of those policies which are considered acceptable to moderate on is only going to expand over time. Mm -hmm. So we're position if if a call for American renewal is not able to elect a wave of candidates in 2022, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. One we've seen with people like AOC how just one candidate is enough to really capture the nation's imagination and shift the Overton window. Window, So I'm excited about that. But two, what we're doing is we're building out organization and infrastructure, and that takes time to hit the ground running to make a change. David Frum likes to say this. He, he'll say that um, plans are often useless, but planning is invaluable. And I think in a call for American renewal, we now have an engine through which we can plan to make a good impact. So you were saying earlier when we talked about kind of whether this is a third party or a faction that obviously you are on one of these sides. Would you care to kind of share which one you think you're leaning more towards? Yeah, definitely. 
you know, with the way that our electoral system is set up right now, single member districts, there's never going to be a third party in the country. I, I, I firmly believe that. The only way there's going to be a third party is if one of our two major party falls. And what I'd like to spend my energy doing is building out a faction within the Republican Party that's going to make it so difficult for people to win that are extremists and QAnon supporters and racists. We have to talk about the hold that white supremacy has on a lot of Republican voting behaviors and a lot of their policies. Um, and th what I want this faction to do ultimately is several things. And I'm gonna try to give some specifics because I think it'll be helpful to your listeners is one, we need to form an alternative version of the NRCC. So when people run for Congress, they're able to take positions that aren't going to be particularly favorable to the party leader, the, the House Republican leader at the time. So we'll have our own autonomy. We need to have an alternative fundraising network, something like Win Red or Act Blue, so that we can not only fund candidates who are speaking out against Republican orthodoxy, but that we can also fund their people who are going to do primary challenges against other Republicans. We need a grassroots mobilization network and data vault. So something like I360 is what a lot of campaigns use to collect data on voters and door knock their doors and organize. We need some of our own um, technology to support our campaigns. So when you start to see those things come together, it becomes a para party. It's a party within a party. And that's where we're gonna see these like internecine fights and it's gonna exhibit itself in Congress. So places like my home state of Virginia, I live in Hampton Roads, which is which was a strong Navy area. It's the, the highest concentration of um, Navy family members in the country. And it's always, it was always a solidly conservative district. But over time, what you have is a lot of particularly women who have been uncomfortable with the rhetoric of the Republican Party as of late. This issue became purple, and now it's become blue, a bluish purple. We have a Democratic Congresswoman right now. The area voted overwhelmingly for our Democratic governor. It returned Tim, Senator Tim Kaine to, to the Senate. And these are trends that are, are unusual for Virginia. It's why Virginia has gone blue. And so these are the very type of voters that we need to be able to include in the faction. A centrist Republican is going to appeal to these voters in a way that an ultra conservative candidate never will. And so if there's a faction that can support these people running for office, they're going to get into Congress. And then we can form our own version of the Freedom Caucus, the House Freedom Caucus, which has been incredibly obstructionist, and they've only had a few members. So if we're able to elect these more moderate congressmen and congresswomen from the parts of the country that are going to be more accepting of this moderate message, then we're going to be able to do a lot to thwart Kevin McCarthy's policies when they're bad for the country. And then that's going to begin to get us some real power. So I'm not talking about my faction of the party, the moderate faction of the party, I don't think we're ever going to be able to elect a Speaker of the House, for example. We're never going to be that strong, but we could be strong enough to have a 30-person caucus 
that can really be a thorn in the side of some of these Trump Republicans and say, hey, we are going to side with the Democrats when we need to. And I know I sounded like an optimist at the beginning, and now I sound like a really cynical pragmatist, but I think that's where change is made. And, you know, I am thinking about the country that I want to live in for the next 70 years. And in order for me to not lose hope, I have to think in those practical terms. And and I invite everybody who wants to really get real change to allow themselves to be more practical as well. Well, one of the things that, you know, in kind of challenging um, the Trumpy Republicans is um, kind of the seeming shift towards authoritarianism. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I have realized is that, and I think you even said it earlier, that uh, a, a bulwark toward kind of for a democracy um, tends to be um, center-right political parties. Yep. Um, because if you don't have that linchpin, it basically falls apart. Um, but what we're seeing, of course, right now is what has been traditionally the center-right party kind of thinking that, you know, democracy is not so great. Mm-hmm. And... Why do you think that is? What has happened in the GOP that has made it move towards this authoritarian turn? Is it, it seems like it could be more than just Donald Trump, but Trump seems to be a big part of it. Yeah, that's, you know, what's interesting is Trump is a symptom more than he is a cause. We've been seeing these trend lines in the party towards authoritarianism for quite some time now. But I think I want to preface this by encouraging your audience to, um, if if you're interested, to look into this book by Daniel Zablot. He's a Harvard professor. He wrote um, Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy. He really looked at pre-democratic societies that transitioned to democracies and how conservative parties play a crucial role in that transition. So highly encourage that book if you want to read more. But one of the things that I've noticed in this climb towards authoritarianism is um, you can look at, for example, white evangelical voters. They voted for Donald Trump 81% in this past election. That's a high number to begin with, but it is a higher number than any previous Republican presidential nominee in the past. And so when you, when you see that, when you see somebody like Donald Trump who had was infamous for mistresses and even had the allegation um, or even had the, was caught bragging on tape about sexually assaulting women, why did evangelical voters still vote for him? And why did they do that more than someone like George Bush who was very open and sincere about his own evangelical faith? And there's a sociologist, um, Gerardo Marti, and he kind of looks at how there was a change in tactics among evangelical voters. And part of it had to do with the fact that America was becoming a little less white and a little less Christian. And they experienced this phenomena called in-group embattlement, where they realized that their power was declining. And so where they previously tried to elect candidates, such as 
George Bush or Mike Huckabee, people who could be moral exemplars in office to change the way. And they wanted to persuade people to come around to their moral point of view. They wanted to have public debates about why homosexuality was wrong, for example, and, and try to convince people of that and then have that persuasion impact public policy. What they realized is there were fewer and fewer white Christian voters. And so what they needed to do was seek out power through elected officials who, and then use the power of the state to enforce their moral worldview instead of the power of persuasion. So that's a tactic that was used by, a tactic change that was used by this group. And it resulted in some pretty authoritarian tendencies. It's why they chose Donald Trump over more evangelical figures in the Republican primary, such as Ted Cruz and Ben Carson. They wanted a cultural warrior who would stand up for them. Um, evangelical leader uh, Franklin Graham uh, talked about how Don, uh, George Bush was not as outspoken against Muslims as he wanted George Bush to be. And then Donald Trump had a lot more aggressive rhetoric. And, um, you know, all of these are reasons that are prompting a more authoritarian Republican Party. And there are so many kind of interesting things about all of that. Um, as you said, the fact that they were willing to um, support someone who did, was not a moral exemplar um, and, and using the power of the state, um, which also seems a little odd for conservatives. Yeah. Um, but do they have a concern about how they appear? Because I think you know, you're seeing them kind of throw off all the things that they once believed in. And, you know, some people would say that's going to affect how popular they will be in, in the future. Or do they think that that doesn't matter? Um, what matters is the power. And that's it. You know, I don't know if rank and file Christian voters think about their pers public perception as a group as strategically as like politically savvy operators might. But what, but what I can tell you is kind of what is apparent from the data. And so like in Pew, Pew Research in 2017 did a, uh, conducted a survey of white evangelicals and they found that 72% believe that Islam and democracy were in conflict. So, so if, if people believe that, there's a real motivation for them to elect somebody who's gonna say, I'm gonna trample the First Amendment religious freedom rights of Muslims and allow them to not enter the country, which is what Donald Trump campaigned on with his Muslim ban. Um, Ed Stetzer with Christianity Today, they did a, a survey of evangelical voters, white evangelical voters. And they asked them what their top priority was for the 2016 presidential election. And what we would anticipate, what we've always been told about these evangelicals is that they're values voters, that the top issues they care about when they go to the ballot box are the Supreme Court and abortion and 
fighting for these, these Christian conservative principles. In reality, that is not what um, Stetzer's data shows. It shows that the top four answers by evangelicals about what their priorities were for the 2016 election, 17% said the economy, 11% said a position on healthcare, that's what they were voting on, 10% said immigration, 9% said national security. So those were the top. And then uh, Supreme Court ranked at the bottom, it ranked at 7% and abortion ranked at 5%. And so I think we've always had this picture in our heads about what Christian voters want. And we might have taken that from some of the cues of elites like pastors and religious faith leaders and what they talk about as, as much. But when you looked at the data that said, what do the voters actually care about? It tells a different story. Hmm. So with this turn towards authoritarian, authoritarianism, where do you kind of see that heading in the next few years? Um, do you see that portion of the party growing? And if so, how would it appear? Um, we've, we've already seen in some ways one way that it has appeared and that was January 6th. Yeah. Are there, you know, is there a concern that there could be other types of, or other January 6th or something even worse? You know, I don't mean to come off as overly alarmist, but I do think that we're on a path of decline, a dangerous path. And that's why I've been raising the alarms through things like a call for American renewal and other types of activism. Ronald Reagan said for all his flaws, you know, is a leader of the conservative movement. He's still lauded in a lot of the circles, even people who, among people who supported Donald Trump. And he always said that freedom is always one generation away from extinction. We have to pass down the meaning of America to our children and to the next generation in order for them to believe that these principles have value. And that often takes persistence and rededication by our elected officials who talk about these values. Right now we have a whole class of leaders in the Republican party who are not talking about the founding fathers and the rule of law. And that's a real problem. Donald Trump and his acceptance speech in 2016 at the Republican National Convention never said the name of a former president, never used words from a founding framer. Um, and that's unprecedented. Every Republican nominee speech had always referenced at least a former president. Donald Trump did not. He said, I alone can fix it. And so this is what the Republican Party is. That's why it's so dangerous. I think we are likely to see another January 6th, especially if the rhetoric that the president is saying about the big lie that the election was rigged and stolen, he put out a statement about that just the other day. He's put out several statements in the past two months alone. And so why wouldn't there be more violence, especially if no one is on the Republican side of the aisle is speaking out and saying otherwise? The fear of these echo chambers and these silos that we've gotten into is conservative media will amplify these comments by the president and they'll push down anything like um, Liz Cheney speaking up against them. And so people are being lied to 
And these voters at home are hearing everybody that they respect from Tucker Carlson to Donald Trump to um, their congressmen in their district saying that the election was rigged and stolen. That's going to piss some people off and spark them into anger. The scariest thing, Dennis, is I think we're going to see when it comes time to certify the results of the next election. What are people going to do? Are the secretaries of state going to overthrow ballots? And at that point, how do you handle it as a country? Does the military step in? I think once you have the military stepping in to secure ballot locations, we're in a really dark place for the country. Why do you think that people are so willing to, well, I want to say willing to follow someone like Trump, but but willing to to buy into the big lie? Why why can they not understand kind of the fact of what happened that Joe Biden won the election? That's what happens in the democracy. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. What is it? Basically, kind of in the character of the people that they that are so set in wanting to believe this. I mean, we understand in some ways why Donald Trump wants to believe this because he just doesn't like to lose. But other people have just totally bought into it. And what's going on among the the them that that would allow that to happen? Well, there's there's two answers to the question, and it depends on who you're asking me about. So if it's about the the everyday American voters who are making these decisions, I think a large part is because they're being lied to. They're being fed false information by these people that I that I just mentioned. And I then I think it's a little bit understandable. I mean, I would be outraged if I thought that my vote was discounted. I get that. Now, then there's a whole different answer for people who are in elected office, people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who quote unquote, should know better. And, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the January 6th insurrection, Josh Hawley had his best fundraising quarter ever. He raised, I think, $1.6 million for his role in obstructing the election. One of the top Congress people who Um, fundraised in the previous quarter was Marjorie Taylor Greene. She raised $3.2 million. It was more money than some members of congressional leadership did. So there's a real financial incentive here. There's a popularity incentive. Liz Cheney came to Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service just last month to talk to students about the future of the Republican Party. And she said that there was a real issue with federal elected officials coming to Washington who wanted to be social media celebrities and prioritize that over governing and policy. And so people are seeing big checks and something like speaking arrangements or potential um, hits on Fox News or shows on Fox News. People like Matt Gates are willing to resign from Congress in order to take shows. There's a lot of that going on, but then what I think is the more pernicious element in all of this, and Dennis, I don't know how we're going to solve this, so you and I are going to have to figure this out, get together, and come up with it, but it's all the people that are remaining silent. In the Trump era, silence is complicity, and my biggest disappointment is not the people like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene 
who I think to a certain extent are the extreme of the extreme and are the result of us letting bad people get into Congress. But it's folks like Ben Sass, Senator Ben Sass, for whom I had incredible respect. In 2015, he wrote an open letter to Trump supporters explaining why he wasn't gonna be able to vote for Donald Trump if he won the nomination. This is before Trump won the nomination, he wrote this. And he was a, a real voice of reason. He talked about how our vote was sacred and that it was a value judgment on who we were as Americans and why it, he just because he despised Hillary Clinton, that, meant, that didn't mean he could automatically vote for Donald Trump. Well, once Trump got into office and then Senator Sass had his own reelection coming up, his criticism of, he, he criticized Trump every now and then in the beginning. And then when the primary campaign really got underway, Ben Sass went silent and he didn't speak out when Trump, um, he didn't vote against Trump's first impeachment when he clearly had wrongdoings. And, and that's where you see an emboldened liar in Trump and, and the people like Rudy Giuliani who decided to go along with Trump. The silence allowed Trump to do things that were truly unconscionable. And what we need to do is to remind people like Ben Sass that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem and not vote, not honor those people with our votes. And that's gonna be tricky. It, it, it's gonna be hard to persuade people that that's the right way to go about um, voting choices. But C.S. Lewis wrote about courage. And he said, courage is every virtue at its testing point. And we need people who are gonna stand up and step forward when something is wrong. Because if we don't elect people with courage who can stand for the power of their conviction when the going gets rough, then they don't really have principles and there's really nothing there to support. We don't want people who are just sunshine, sunshine soldiers. And so that's gonna be my next chapter is convincing people that it's not enough just to get someone in seats who are gonna vote the way that you want them to vote in easy times, but we, re we really need moral leaders of conviction who are gonna be able to stand up to their friends and their fellow partisans when their fellow partisans are taking us in a dark direction. Why do you think that there has been so much silence? Um, so one of the reasons there's been so much silence is that people want to get reelected. A second reason is that in order for a U.S. senator to make a difference on legislation, to influence their, to get their bills and their policy priorities across, is they have to have the esteem of their colleagues. And right now, that means not speaking up against Donald Trump. That's another reason that they've been silent. A third is these people want to keep their jobs because they were many of them rely on it for financial security. Or even if that, they just don't want to be yelled at the grocery store. And so, so I think those are three reasons why people have remained silent. Um, I think the the um, reelection piece is a big part of it. 
right now these Republican primaries occur in districts that are so gerrymandered that it's only uh, going to be conservatives that are whoever wins the Republican primary is who's going to win the general election. And so there's no incentive for Republicans to nominate someone that's more moderate that can appeal to the whole whole district. So that's a real problem. Um, One of the other things I think has um, kind of arisen over the last few weeks, um, especially is and I don't know if you've heard about this, that there was a letter that was signed by a number of people in the military mm-hmm. um, in favor, again, of the, of the big lie. Uh, where do you think that that factors in, um, especially because many people in the military tend to be conservative? Um, how does that factor into party politics and the strength of the kind of Trumpist within the GOP. You know, I'm not familiar with that letter. I thought you were referring to the the letter that was signed by the nine former um, Department of Defense. Department Secretaries of Defense. Now, yeah, this is a different one. Um, okay. uh, this was, uh, came out maybe mm-hmm. a few weeks ago and it was well over, I think over a hundred um, different military officials. Um, mm-hmm that were all in favor of Trump, um, that said that that he won the election, it was stolen from him. Um, Which, at least from my vantage point, seems to be a very disturbing turn. Um, We usually like to think that the military tries to stay out of um, political matters. And here is a case where these weren't retired, these are in many cases were active military that wanted to be involved. And um, that just seems to be a, a very, could be a very serious and dangerous turn um, yeah. for the United States. Yeah, that is dangerous. I, I don't know anything about it because I, I haven't read that letter, but I think if they're actively serving military officers who want to intervene in elections, they should be removed dishonorably from the military. And what we've seen over the last four years of the Trump administration is a massive erosion of culture, of democratic norms, and of our civic institutions. In many ways, those were deliberate Trump policies to chip away at our civic institutions. It was his rhetoric that was eroding cultural norms and making people feel like they could do things and say things that we've never had people do before. So we need a restoration of that. And that is gonna be through changes at the top of culture setting by organizational leaders. And I'm talking military leaders, I'm talking civic leaders. We need our church leaders to come in and talk to people about why these foundational values are important again it's gonna be an all hands on deck approach. Right now, I don't see there being a lot of appetite for that because we're all so exhausted by the past election cycle, by the global pandemic, but we're gonna need a big emphasis on on this. It's the problem is, is that you can rip these things down rather quickly and then it takes a long time to build them back up. I think one of the things that um, in doing some 
preparing for this and then for a prior episode, um, I believe the Guardian spoke to um, a former aide of um, Mitt Romney. And one of the things that he said is, this is not gonna be over in 2022 or 2024. It's gonna be a decades long um, process to kind of root out some of the things that are happening within conservatism. That yeah. um, it's it's a long haul um, process. Right. I tend to agree on that. I'm I'm kind of curious. You know, what do you think? Do you think that this is just kind of the first step in a like the culture renewal is the first step in a long kind of slog? I do. It's going to be it's going to be a long time coming. And part of what we're dealing with, it's not just the last four years of Trump. It's centuries of culture in this country that of, of, of us pretending like our history isn't as dark as it is. I, we, I talked a little bit about um, white evangelical voters. And one of the phrases that I didn't bring up that is a key part of it is Donald Trump capitalized on a fear-based politics, on an anxiety-based politics. There's a lot of racial grievance that is fueling the appeal of Trumpism, the nativism that he used in his campaign speeches. And that's why I really believe that we have to make racial reconciliation a cornerstone of these efforts of conservative reform. So a call for American renewal talks about the importance of equality and opportunity. And, and I wish that they had gone further on that point because we need to start talking about how the people that we elect and the people that we exclude from leadership in the party is, um, is, is, is important to, to discuss and to make that a priority. And we can't have, unless we start to chip away at some of the ways that we've systemically built in racist policies to our country, policies like redlining, which have separated neighborhoods which then separates schools. It's very possible to live in a racially diverse city in America and never go to public school, church, or the grocery store with someone of a different race. And that's because in large part government policies and other social engineering that was designed to keep people apart, that's gonna continue to fuel grievance politics in this country. And, and that's why we're seeing this inclination towards authoritarianism. So unless we start talking about race and the role that race plays in influencing culture and politics, then we're not gonna make the progress that we need to make as a country. And conversations about race are really difficult. And part of it is because especially white people have a hard time of seeing racism. And I know that's so crazy because um, it, it's so obvious to people who um, who are affected by it and people who, who know and love people who are affected by it. But for, for many reasons, we have these cultural cleavages in our society and in our neighborhoods that keep us apart. And we need to keep bringing up race because it's one of the biggest underlying factors for why Trumpism occurred. And we're not gonna be able to solve the problems that the country faces unless we deal with our racial history. And I would agree. I think one of the things I hope to see this movement 
um, do is to really take um, racial reconciliation as something of a deep value within wow. conservatism. Um, I'm not someone that would say that all conservatives are racist or anything to that extent, but I think conservatives have not always taken um, the problem of racism as seriously as they should. Right. Um, so it's kind of my hope to see that happening um, with this movement and into the future. That's right. Um, and the, the, a large reason why it's never been prioritized by conservatives is because um, conservatives have never needed the votes of people of color or wanted the votes of people of color. And, and I'm not interested in being part of a movement or a party that is a white power party and that ignores these issues. And so, you know, my vow and my promise is to be one of the white voices in the room that's saying we have to talk about race. We can't ignore race because maybe it will be heard differently if, if I am the one, if someone like me is the one bringing it up. But I also know that um, our problems can't be solved without addressing it. And, and I invite people who are listening to bring up the issues of race in your own communities. So whether you're a part of a local GOP unit or a part of a business or an organization, if your leadership is not diverse, you need to build a better, a bigger table. If And this has to be executive decision-making level. It can't just be an aesthetic diversity to look good on magazines or your photos on social media. And we, ha we have to, sometimes that means giving up positions and sometimes that's uncomfortable to do, but we have to start making those difficult choices. That's what leaders are called to do. They're called to answer difficult problems. And sometimes that requires sacrifice. And it, it also, it, this doesn't have to be a zero sum game. I'm a big pro, uh, proponent of additive leadership. And so um, once we start to all operate like that, we're gonna be able to have more tools and more ideas and more resources to combat the challenges that confront us. Okay. Well, I think that we will wrap it up there, but um, if someone is just hearing about um, a call for American renewal for the first time, um, how should they get in contact with the movement um, and to get involved? Yeah, so um, there's a website, a call for American renewal.com, and you can read the pledge. We've listed uh, 13 principles to guide this movement, and you can sign your name as someone who supports it. We have a national town hall that's coming up on June 16th, 2021. It's going to be at 7.30 Eastern, and we'd love to have you there to discuss. And that concludes the interview with Reed Howard, uh, one of the signers of A Call uh, to American Renewal. And I want to thank him for uh, the time. It was, a, I think, an engaging interview. Uh, I hope to have him back here again, hopefully maybe even focusing a little bit more on, especially uh, being that we are both um, ministers on where religion and politics are intersecting in our modern day. Uh, just a reminder that if you uh, can, please consider leaving a rating at whatever uh 
platform you use to listen to this podcast. The other thing I wanted to let you know is um, I have set up a, um, what I think they call it, buy me a coffee. It's kind of a, a way of, of raising um, for people who are interested in kind of accepting donations. And we are starting to accept donations. I will be honest, I am not the best person when it comes to asking for money. Um, but I do want to uh, start putting that out there and to say that if you support uh, good podcasts that may shed light on some topics that you haven't heard before or to hear a perspective that you haven't heard before, I would consider making a donation. You can find the link in the show notes and um, whatever you can afford is fine. And if you can't afford it right now, that's fine as well. I want to thank you for joining us. I'm hoping pretty soon to uh, do another interview. This will be on Afghanistan. Um, I'm really have been interested in that issue and with the um, drawdown of forces, I've always been concerned, wondering, you know, what does that mean? And could leaving Afghanistan cause a, cause America more problems than staying? So hopefully I will be able to talk to, um, we'll be talking to someone who is an expert on for American foreign policy that we can talk about that a little bit more. If you have uh, a topic that you think I should be considering, uh, please drop me a note. My email address is in the show notes, and I'd love to hear from you. Well, that is it for this week. Take care, everyone, and Godspeed. <laughs>